Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to another episode of THN on the O. As always, I'm your favorite ball draft analyst, Tony Ferrari from the Hockey News. And with me is my good bald friend, Brock Otten. How are you doing today, Brock? Good, Tony. How are you doing? Not too bad. It's going to be a good week. We're going to talk about some top prospect game. Do a little bit of Frankenstein construction to make an OHL defender and kind of go over some news of the week and get to our team of the week as well. Sound good? Sounds great, man. All right, let's start off with the three stars as we do every week. But this week, we've got a little bit of a a change to it. We're going to look at three stars from the top prospects game last week. It was a a fun game. First off, let's get your your thoughts on the event as a whole. Well, you know, my prediction came true. Not the (laughs) 5-4 score that I said, but I did say that Team White would win. And I did say that Scott Ratzlaff was going to be one of the main reasons there. So, uh, you know, a little humble brag. Uh, It was a good game, though. Um, CHL top prospect game is is always uh, a highlight on the scouting calendar. And not because you're making a a ton of, you know, solid, concrete evaluations from it. But at the same time, it's... It's a good event, pure entertainment. Yeah, it was a fun game. I think seeing guys get out there, and I, I, it was fun to see Connor Bedard kind of mix it up. I think it was his third game all year to, between the World Juniors and WHL and now the top roster team where he was held without a point. So naturally, Connor Bedard's a bust. But uh, no, it was fun to see guys mix it up with him. I think Luca Pinelli laid a big hit on him. He was laying some hits out there. It was, it was a fun game. Yeah, I I agree. It was very interesting to see Bedard um, almost get frustrated, I I felt like. Uh, A little bit snake-bitten in the game, was creating some chances, but uh, the Team White goalies were up to the task, and they were taking away his space pretty good uh, from a defense perspective. And you could see it it was frustrating him a little bit. Like you said, he's not used to being held off the score sheet. Yeah, it was really interesting because at the start of the game, I was like, oh, Bedard's going about 75%, and he's still creating chances. But as the game went on, he started to try a little harder. And, and by the end of the game, he was rating every scrum. I think he was mixing up with Callan Lind at one point, which is a tough customer in his own right. So it, it was a fun game to see. But let's get to your three stars. Who who are the three OHLers that stuck out to you? I'll let you run through your three, and then I'll run through mine. Yeah, so number one was Oliver Bonk. He's kind of been a tough guy for me to really get uh, a solid – opinion of uh this year uh i've kind of gone up and down uh of my opinion of him and the more i watch him lately the more i i'm really starting to like him and i and i know that's something that seems to be consistent across the board with other scouts other people covering the ohl his game has been really good for the last two three months i would say and at that event i thought he was the best defenseman quite frankly i thought that he was a rock in the defensive end seemed like whenever he was on the ice just nothing was getting to the middle of the ice. Um, he's got such a good defensive mind, such a good stick in the defensive zone. And I thought he made really good decisions offensively too, just starting the breakout, getting the puck up ice quickly. Um, so he'd be my number one. Carson Raycoft, obviously team MVP for Team White, uh, had a great game, especially a really good third period where he was able to showcase his speed and power game north-south, driving in the net. And then Kyle Ritchie, I would say, was my third star from the OHL. Had a Kyle Ritchie kind of game, right? Um, 
you know, wasn't the most noticeable player on the ice, but had two points, was good at both ends. He's just such a smart player. And I think, I think we kind of have to evaluate him from a sort of different lens. And we talked about that last week and just, he's not the type of player that you can expect to, to dazzle and, and well, razzle and dazzle, um, for lack of a better term, right? He's he's more of a heavy thinker, and he's somebody that breaks down defenses with his quick decision-making, and it was just sort of a typical Kyle Ritchie performance, and especially lately. Yeah, it was really uh interesting game for the OHLers, I thought, as a whole. Uh, Carson Raycroft was the only guy that you took from me, so I, I went with three other guys myself. Um, but the first guy I wanted to point out was Luca Pinelli. He was kind of all over the ice. Like I mentioned, he laid a big hit on Connor Bedard in the neutral zone. He was getting it on the forecheck, playing a very Luca Pinelli game, just understanding where to be, how to get there. He's a smaller guy. There was a moment, I think, in the third period where he got bowled over a little bit himself, but he was right back up, right back into the play. And I think that's something you love to see from a, a little bit of an undersized guy. Uh, Hunter Bruchewitz was another guy I noticed a lot, especially in the transition game. He he had his faults in the defensive zone. I think that's just something you're going to have to live with with his game in general. But him transporting the puck up the ice was so efficient, and he kind of showcased a little bit more than just the straight line speed we've seen in Kitchener so often this year. There's a little bit more shiftiness, a little bit more edge work use and stuff like that, so that was fun to see as well. And then because you took Carson Raycrop from me, who I thought had a fantastic game in his own right, I'm going with Nick Lardis for my third star. He had one assist in the game. He wasn't fantastic but he was kind of showcasing what he can do in terms of being a little bit of a stronger guy being a little bit of a power forward he used his shot well i thought got to good spots i think he missed that on a couple of them but he was really smart and understood kind of where to be in the offensive zone and then his defensive positioning was really really good too which i think never goes uh as the highlight reel especially in a top prospects game like this but a guy like nick lardis just continued to kind of show he knows what to do at both ends of the ice and i think that's going to take him a long way yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned Lardis because if we had done our more traditional three stars of the week, him and Seal Panwar in Hamilton probably would have been on it just based on their mm. play lately for the Bulldogs. So um, definitely a guy that I think is trending upwards with his uh, new surroundings. All right, now let's get to the OHL news of the week. And I figured the first thing we should get to is where Hamilton's going to play next year. They've settled on Brantford. What was your initial thoughts on that? Well, it was kind of expected. It's sort of what I had heard. Um just more now obviously confirmed it's a tough pill to swallow for Hamilton fans I feel like they've done a really good job of building up that fan base I think I was initially kind of skeptical when they moved to Hamilton and that team has done a really good job of reaching out to the community and making it more of like a family-oriented atmosphere you go to the Hamilton games and you see it it's it's a lot of families and I kind of feel bad for those people obviously it's Brantford it's not far for people to travel but at the same time, if that causes them to lose some families or some people at the event or as fans, uh, it really sucks. But it's a great opportunity yeah. for Brantford, too. It's a good market. Um, maybe it's temporary, probably temporary. But if they do really well in Brantford and they end up committing to a new arena, say, does Ed Lauer change his mind and say, Brantford's our permanent home? And then Hamilton ends up being an empty building or maybe a, a potential um, relocation opportunity for another team or an expansion franchise. Who knows? Yeah. I thought it was really interesting because we, we kept hearing two to three years, two to three years. And the, the announcement comes with a three-year timeline. So it is going to be on the longer end of things. The plan is to go back to Hamilton at the end of everything. But like you said, that Brantford community is, is 
wanted OHL hockey there for a while now, I think. And it's a good, good community, good spot for them. I think, like you said, it's close to Hamilton. So it's not like these, these fans that have been going for so many years are going to be completely uh, left out to dry. It is a, a, I think a 30 minute drive or so. So it's good that they're staying close. It's, it's good that they're going to be able to keep some of the fans, but like you said, they are going to lose fans at the end of the day from the Hamilton community, the people that would be able to just generally walk to the arena or can just get there after work on a, on a quick five, 10 minute drive through the city. So it's going to kind of be a, a fluid situation, I think. And like you said, maybe they decide, Hey, Brantford's our, our spot long-term. And then Hamilton, like you said, is up in the air a little bit more. It's a, a community that's not always been the greatest for the OHL, but they've done a really good job with the Bulldogs. I think they've done a really good job of bringing fans in and getting that building kind of packed with people at times. So it's, it's, they've had honest on ice success. They've had some off ice success. Hopefully they can get back there and continue that going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, the other news, the big news of the week was Stan Butler's back in the OHL in Erie. Uh, this guy never seems to go away. So what were your first thoughts on him coming back? Honestly, a little bit surprising. I know it was sort of in the rumor mill that, you know, he was coming back or, or looking at a possible return to Erie. And I'd seen that mentioned a few times. Um, look, uh, I, I love Stan. Uh, he's been a supporter of my work since the very beginning. Um, and I, I do think that he has a great mind for the game, obviously, as one of the legendary OHL coaches. And the initial reaction that I saw from a lot of people online was that, you know, the game has passed Stan by and that, you know, what, what is Erie thinking? You know, this is not going to work out well. Right. Uh, but my counterpoint to this would be, and, and maybe I am a little bit biased here, but you have a Stan Butler prodigy in Ryan Ulihan who runs a very similar kind of system, learning under Stan Butler in North Bay. And that team is among the best teams in the OHL. Last week, we talked about them as my favorite to, to come out of the East. And, you know, Stan, I think, is going to bring a good wealth of knowledge to, to Erie and, and guide that rebuilding team. In, in a good direction, I think. And is it uh, a long-term solution? I don't know. We, we would have to ask Stan that if this is something that, you know, is a, like one or two-year thing to get the team sort of going in the right direction and then bringing in like another younger coach to, to take over and letting him sort of fade to the background again. Or is this something where he's returning and, and fully committed to the league for a long period of time? Yeah, I, for my first thoughts was this is going to be very similar, I think, to the way that the Leaf, the Toronto Maple Leafs brought in Lou Lamorello, bring someone in to kind of get things back on track. Once you kind of get things back on track, slowly kind of work the new younger blood in there. Let them learn, understand for a little bit. And like you said, this is going to be a thing where it's up to Stan. It's going to be up to Stan to see how long he wants to stay there and, and how big of an impact he wants to make on that team. So it's going to be interesting, but I, I think it's a good move for Erie. I think anytime you can bring in someone as experienced and well-known and well-regarded as, as Stan is in the OHL, then you do it because especially at a time like this where they are kind of going through a little bit of a, a rebuild, retool, kind of building back that program up, it, it's always good to have that in there. And, and speaking of rebuilding programs, are any of these teams rebuilding anymore? Hamilton, Mississauga, Oshawa, Guelph, they've all been playing really, really well, especially since the trade deadline. What has kind of been your reaction as the bottom feeders start to try to move up the standings? Uh, it's, it's interesting. It, it really is. And I think it just proves that these four teams did really well at the deadline. Yeah, they moved out a lot of talent, but they acquired some really good young talent as well. And they already had some good young talent in the pipeline who moved up the lineup. Um, a good example is Luke Misa in Mississauga, who's been on fire lately, centering that first line. 
And we're seeing a newfound confidence from him and the young players that they brought in. Um, those young 06s are, are doing a great job. Hamilton, the, the players that they brought in, Panwar, Lardis, uh, are playing fantastic. I mean, when you do it the right way in the OHL, it's a very quick turnaround. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see, like, does one of these teams end up upsetting somebody in round one of the playoffs? That would be like, I'm here for the chaos. Yeah, I think the first thing I, I thought of, and I mentioned this at the trade deadline, was these teams are bringing in these younger guys. They're giving these younger guys a little bit more opportunity, and they play a little bit of anytime a younger guy comes up, they play a little bit more run and gun hockey. They play a little bit more of that fast paced, high paced game. And while that may not be sustainable long term, it may not be winning championship hockey. It's enough to upset in the first round. It's enough to kind of get this team, get one of these teams into a, a pretty solid playoff spot and, and take on a team that's up at the top of the standings and, and maybe even just frustrate them and give them a really good first round series and then move on next year. And you have that experience now. You know what it takes to take down a, a championship level team like an Ottawa, a North Bay, a Windsor, a London. And you've taken that that first round series from them or you pushed them to seven games and really challenged it. So anytime these young guys like this can come in, build some experience, build some confidence heading into next year, which is a lot of their draft years or so their D plus ones or even some of these guys coming in as 06s, just really kind of building that confidence going into the, the next couple of years. It's going to be really interesting for these teams is, as you said, they they did it the right way. And I think at the, at the OHL level, like you said, you can flip it around really quickly and get back to that, not necessarily – top end contender status, but you can get back into that top four or five in the standings. Yeah. And like you said, playoff experience is extremely important in the OHL. Um, we've seen it from you know previous uh, years and previous championship runs when teams get that experience to their young players uh, at a, you know, at a key point in their development, it's extremely beneficial. And teams like uh, Oshawa, for example, that's going to be great for Cal Ritchie's development, uh, you know, getting a playoff round or, or maybe more if they could squeeze in, right? They're, they're kind of on the bubble right now, but with they're playing, they could easily push into that seven or eight spot. Um, does that give them a worse draft pick? Does it take them out of the Ryan Rubik sweepstakes? Yeah, but I mean, I guess it's a toss up of what you see as more important, right? Yeah, I think so. And it's always uh, an interesting thing to look at is to, the way a team wants to build and the philosophy they take to get there. And like you said, playoff experience is really important, but so is that elite young talent that you can get high in the draft. Now, the last thing on our, our news notes for the week here is Slewfoot Overkill. And I'll let you take this away because it's not something I necessarily noticed, but it's clearly something you've uh, had your eye on. Yeah, it just seems like the last slew of games, for lack of a better term, um, <laughs> It's it's like there's one a game, and some of them are pretty suspect. And and even like games that I've watched on video, seems like there's one. We're seeing a lot of suspensions, a lot of match penalties, and some of these uh, I would say are, are not slewfoots. Now I'm we've talked about this on the podcast before uh, when we talked about you know um, protecting different areas from skates and things like that earlier in the in the season. I am definitely a proponent of safety when we're talking about young individuals. Uh, I'm a teacher. It's something that that I believe in. At the same time, you know, some of the things that I'm seeing called uh, as slewfoots, it's more of a case of lost balance or somebody applying pressure to somebody's upper half and just happening to, you know, sort of accidentally take out the lower half. And they're not like cut and dry slewfoots. Now, I get what the league is trying to do. 
I really do. I understand that you're trying to force players to be more careful and in more control of their bodies, right? Because a slew foot is an extremely, extremely dangerous play um, when it comes to head injuries and, and yeah. knee injuries too, right? Like if you buckle the wrong way, there's a torn ACL. Um, so there's a lot of different injuries that can come from a slew foot. But at the same time, uh, I just don't know if players can really change. Like we're also talking about young individuals who are still trying to figure out their coordination on the ice, right? And trying to go through some of the things that they're doing and and having that full control. Maybe maybe that's an unrealistic ask here. And um, you know, the plays that I'm seeing called as slew foots are just not even maybe penalties at at the NHL or AHL level, right? Yeah, now that you mentioned it, I do remember going back to the Shane Wright's debut, actually, funny enough. Um, being in the building, I was there, and I had a couple people from the Saginaw Spirit sitting not too far from me. And there was a call early, early in the game where uh, Saginaw got a five-minute penalty because there was a game of misconduct for a slew foot on a Windsor player. And I, I leaned over to one of the people from Saginaw's front office, and I said, uh, do you think that was a slew foot? And they're like, eh, they called it. We'll take it. And it's one of those things where, like, even they're kind of questioning whether it's a slew foot and whatnot. So I do think you're right. Like, the, some of these calls, maybe they're not necessarily slew foots. But like you said, they're taking the safety into to consideration here. And maybe it's one of those things like the NHL or the OHL has done in the last few years where they're going, oh, we're going to crack down on cross checks. And you kind of see them fade away after a little while. And they, you kind of see them go and – they enforce it for a bit. So guys are a little bit more hesitant to do it. And then we kind of get things corrected out over the course of the year. Maybe it's something going in the playoffs that that's what the OHL wants to do. So it'll definitely be something to keep an eye on moving forward though. Yeah. It's like mouth guard gate that we talked about earlier, right? Exactly. You know, it's definitely something that the league is trying to crack down on and they're trying to force players to adjust to whether they can. I don't know. And does that mean that less more slew foots get called over the course of the year? I guess we'll find out. All right, now let's get into a fun segment that you, you had planned or suggested for today's episode. And we're going to go with an OHL Frankenstein. We're going to build a defender using traits from uh, defenders around the OHL. So the rules are pretty simple. Select five characteristics from different defenders across the OHL to make your super defender, a.k.a. a Frankenstein. So, Brock, what were your five categories and, and who are the players you're stealing traits from? Yeah, so my five categories were skating ability. So we're talking overall skating ability, quickness, four-way mobility, um, second one was hands and creativity, third one, physicality, fourth one, length and stick. So I kind of separated those two, um, not separate, separated those two from physicality, I should say. And then the fifth would be defensive awareness. Uh, those are, I think, really important. I would say the five most important things, I think more important than say like a point shot or, or other areas, um, which you may touch on. Um, so here's here's my Frankenstein. And I think there's – I definitely agree with a lot of your choices too. I think we could have gone in a lot of different ways here. So overall skating ability, I'm going with Bo Aiki. Um, draft eligible defenseman, I think he's one of the better skating defenders, one of the better skating players uh, in the OHL. Um, hands and creativity, I'm going with Pavel Minchikov. I think that he's the type of guy that just constantly escapes pressure. And not just that first layer of pressure. We're talking about those second and third layers of, of defensive pressure as well. And that just – He's just like a defensive breakdown machine uh, for the other team, right? And that creativity, uh, I kind of thought about Brant Clark in that area too, but I think Michikov was just a little bit more dynamic in that regard. Uh, physicality of Ethan Del Mastro. Uh, there's definitely, I think, more physical players in the OHL, but I think Del Mastro picks his spots 
among the best uh, of players in the OHL or defenders in the OHL, especially down low. He's a really difficult guy to, to match up against sort of in that crease and, and below the hash marks. Uh, length and stick, I went with Jack Mathieu. Uh, I think that his ability to, to mine gaps and his stick in that sort of slot area is, is among the best, and he's a great shot blocker, gets his stick in, in shooting lanes really well. Defensive awareness, I went with Oliver Bonk. Kind of touched on that with the top prospects game evaluation. I thought he was fantastic on that event. I think the more I watch him, the more I realize how genius he is in the defensive end. I, I can't remember the last time I saw him make a poor defensive read. And I think that his defensive IQ is just uh, through the charts and um, through the roof. And those would be my five. That would be my super defenseman. What about you, Tony? Now, it was really interesting because when you when you suggested this, you originally wrote down your five categories. And well, mine are a little bit different. They kind of touch on the same things. But it was really interesting because I was like, oh, the way you and I kind of think about the game, which is slightly differently, we almost made two defensemen that could be excellent pairing pairing guys, yeah. I think, together. Because I think your guy does lean a little bit more defensively and my guy leans a little bit more offensively. And the five categories I went with were overall mobility, I think similar to you, skating ability, the guy that can do, do a little bit of everything in, in terms of being able to move around the ice. Uh, breakouts and transitions was a different uh, category that I went with. And I, I think you went more with physical traits and stuff like that. And I went with a little bit more of the uh, – landscape of how they play the game in terms of that so i went with breakout transitions defensive acumen offensive prowess and then size and physicality i think you have to incorporate that in some sort of way so that was my fifth category uh for mobility i went with isaiah george a guy that has excellent skating ability kind of moves laterally extremely well one of the best uh kind of skaters in his draft class the a couple years or last year there's so much to like about it the way he kind of moves around the ice that i think if you take his raw skating ability and pair it with some of these other characteristics you kind of create this super defenseman and then going into the breakouts and transitions i leaned a little bit offensively here too and i went with a guy like pavel minchukov who's i think one of the best guys at, at getting the puck from defensive end to the offensive end i joked during his draft year that this guy's basically a left winger at times there's so many times where he can just fly up the ice and take the take the offensive zone without issue without having to worry about needing a forward there to kind of supplement off if he had the skill and the pace and the skating ability to do it as well and then with defensive acumen i went with a guy ethan del mastro who you also mentioned i think just kind of combining the entire defensive game he does so many things so well i think you saw it at the world juniors where he was quietly one of the the team canada's best defensemen from start to finish uh, just consistent in every aspect and his defensive reads and his physicality like you mentioned are just really, really good. So I think his defensive acumen is the one I'd take there. Offensive prowess, I did go Brant Clark, as you mentioned him as well. A guy that I think, if he were one of these elite skaters in terms of a, a Pavel Minchikov, an Isaiah George, that's when you could unlock this unreal defenseman that would absolutely tear the league apart. And you're seeing it even still without the elite, elite uh, skating upside. So He's a guy that I think, and cheating a little bit because he wasn't in the OHL all year, but I'll take his offensive game. And then for size and physicality, I wanted to go with a one draft eligible. I, I consider Braden Hash here, another guy, Archim Guriev, another physical player who just kind of crushes guys. But I went with Andrew Gibson, uh, a guy that's eligible for this year's draft, a guy that doesn't get a lot of credit because he doesn't play this loud game. He's not a guy that's up near the top of draft boards, but he's a really intriguing player. He's got size. And I'm not going to lie, I cheated a little bit, and I went, he's 17. He's still got an inch or two to grow. He's already six foot three, six foot four. 
he grows a little bit, gets fills out a little bit more. Even this super defenseman that I built could could be even better going forward. Yeah, I, I love your picks, Tony. Honestly, I, I think uh, like you said, it'd be interesting to see our defenseman paired up uh, on that first pairing. Um, question: If we added a six, and let's say it's a point shot, who would you choose? An interesting guy I considered because I almost went with point shot, but I was like, it's not that important for defenseman. But Ty Nelson was a guy that stands out in that regard for me. I think Nelson's got a big shot despite not being the biggest player back there. Stocky kid, absolutely bomb from the blue line. And I think that'd be kind of my choice there. How about you? Uh, honestly, same thing. And I same. I thought about adding that as well and went in a different direction and it would have been Ty Nelson's shot. So it's really interesting. And I, I'm kind of curious when this gets posted, I would love to hear um, our listeners' top five Frankenstein defenseman characteristics. So, or, you know, whose defenseman is better, this guy <laughs> or that guy? Um, so, yeah, let us know what you think. Uh, I'm curious. I can't wait to get that uh, that feedback and uh, seeing who, what kind of people favor in terms of the defenseman. Because, like I said, your guy does lean a little bit more defensively. Mine's a little bit offensively. But when you've got guys like Pavel Minjikov and Ethan Del Mastro combined into a defenseman, you're getting a pretty good defender regardless. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Now let's move on to our 2023 draft spotlight for the week. We're going to talk about Quentin Musty, a guy that recently injured, not playing the most games recently, but one of the biggest risers in the draft class so far this year. Really solid power forward. At the time he was injured, he was leading all draft eligibles in scoring, and he had a one-point lead on Colby Barlow, who's since taken the lead back from him. So what has been your gauge on Quentin Musty this year? Yeah, Musty is great when he is physically dialed in. And, I, and that's going to be the key for him moving forward is, you know, is he going to be more Michael Del Cole, who wasn't able to find that sort of consistent physicality and it kind of hurt him at that Lex level without that elite skating ability, offensively skilled, uh, you know, among the best in that regard, but just didn't have that sort of physical killer instinct and that skating ability that sort of, allowed him to overcome that. And I kind of see Musty in that same sort of regard. Same with like a guy like Arthur Kaliev, right? Um, I think that there is definitely a spot in the NHL for a guy like Musty because he's incredibly skilled. And there's And not just skill, but there's a lot of different attributes as part of his offensive uh, toolkit that are very impressive. The shot is really good, even though we haven't really seen it all that much at the OHL level, but it's a, it's great. It's, it's going to be a high-end uh, grade by the time he graduates from the OHL. I think his playmaking ability actually is very underrated. I think that his decision-making has improved a lot under Derek McKenzie and Sudbury. Um, and even the physical intensity, I think, has improved uh, a lot under Derek McKenzie. It's still somewhat inconsistent, but it's definitely been better. And showing that over the course of the rest of the season when he does return from that hand injury is going to be really, really important. And... Um, I don't know if he's ever going to be a strong player in the defensive end. And that's definitely a weakness of his. And it's similar to what we mentioned when Arthur Kaliev was a draft eligible player and when he was even leaving the league. Right. And he's found a place of found a home at the NHL level with, with the Kings. Um, he's never going to be, in my opinion, a top end NHL player, Kaliev, but you know, his, his skill set definitely has value in that middle six and on the power play. And Musty definitely has the potential to, to be even better than that, I think. And that's why he's so polarizing is because depending on when you catch him, depending on how recent your viewings are, um, even depending on what you 
personally value in in a winger is going to dictate your opinion on Quentin Musty. Yeah, he's a really, really interesting player because he does have a power game to his to his arsenal. He's able to drop the shoulder and kind of drive towards the center and that. And he's done that a lot more, like he said, since the coaching changes that Derek McKenzie's come in. The shot is the thing I keep wanting to, to come out a little bit more because I think you and I noticed since the day he was drafted in the OHL that he's got a high-end shot. I don't know if he's just not using it, if he's not accurate with it or what he needs to do with it, but he's got a heavy release. He's able to kind of get it off from all over the offensive zone from the dots down and be a really good shooter that way. But this year, that development of the playmaking game, like you mentioned, it's so underrated. I don't think it's a credit for it. I, I saw someone mention him as a high-end goal scorer who hasn't scored goals, and I went, yeah, maybe he's a power forward that's a little bit more, that leans a little bit more towards the playmaking side at this point in his career, and then still has that upside to be able to build on that shot. And I think that's where the the really big what do you value thing is there with you like you mentioned there is do you value the raw shot being really good but needs refinement while having this playmaking ability or do you need to be able to kind of figure it out and and go from there for everything else he's a really really fun player like you said going to be a high-end guy but it's going to be really interesting to kind of see where he ends up being slotted in the NHL, nhl draft going forward like i said 48 points in 32 games certainly not too bad yeah, you can't argue with the production. It's just a matter of whether an NHL scouting team is going to be willing to take him in the first round with some of those uncertainties, right? When it's a strong draft year, there are other similar players in that range who teams might value more. Now, the upside with Musty is obviously probably higher than some of those guys. So they're going to have to you know, weigh a lot of different things um, against each other. Uh, the other thing I'm very, very curious about, and I highly doubt it happens, but will the U.S. add Musty to their U18 roster um, in April, assuming that Sudbury is is a first-round elimination or um, not a playoff team, which it could go either way at this point in the East. Um, Sudbury's playing well, but it's probably safe to say that he could be a candidate for that tournament. And they do occasionally. It's not extremely common, but they do occasionally add players from the CHL. Uh, or other areas outside of the uh, development team program. Musty was quite, I would say, decent at the Halinka. He had his ups and downs, but was the most dynamic player probably on that team next to Will Whitelaw. Um, do they take him uh, on that team in sort of like a third or fourth line role power play guy? Maybe somebody to play with Oliver Moore on that second line. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see if he ends up going to that U18 tournament because I think that could be a, a big thing towards making or breaking whether or not he's a top 15 or a top 20 guy at this year's NHL draft. Let's move on to the NHL team of the week. We've got the San Jose Sharks this week. We've got a couple of names that are pretty noticeable and will probably get signed, and then a few that are uh, not as uh, noticeable and not as realistic long-term options for the Sharks. So let's get to, to the top scoring player for this, in the system in the OHL, Ethan Cardwell, 23 goals, 27 assists, and 50 points in 39 games, 12 penalty minutes, and he's a plus six. Having a good season for the Barry Colts. He's an interesting prospect, an uh, older guy that I don't know where his NHL future lies, but he's probably a guy that might get an AHL deal. Yeah, uh, it, it's really interesting. All the guys that we're going to talk about here in the San Jose system from the OHL – do not have an NHL contract yet. And all of them will expire in June of 2023. So June of this year, if they are not offered one and um, Cardwell is a guy who's playing really well this year for Barry. I think it's going to depend on how he plays in the playoffs. I think that's going to be 
you know, the real deciding factor as to whether San Jose looks at bringing him sort of in that AHL deal. Maybe he signs with the Barracuda. They kind of bring him along slowly that way, see what they've got, or whether he gets an ELC. Um, I kind of see him, this is kind of like a weird comparison, but when I've watched Cardwell, um, I kind of think back to like Daniel Cleary and a need. Here was a guy who had to sort of reinvent himself as a player to make the NHL. And guys like Cardwell, I kind of feel like are going to have to go through that same sort of transformation. I think that there's a really good all around skill set. Um, Cardwell's a smart player, he's a skilled player. But is he the most skilled? Is he the fastest player on that? see there's a lot of good things, but there's nothing that I would say is like elite or or even like well above average. Um, and those that can be tough to to break through at, at the next level if you don't have at least one sort of above average elite quality, right? And that's yeah, what I a guy like yeah. Sorry, Tony, go ahead. No, I was gonna say I think that's the big thing with Cardwell is. He does a lot of things well, but he's not a master of anything. I think that's the big thing when you're looking at NHL prospects, whether we, we talk about a guy like Kaliev, who had a lot of flaws, and I think Cardwell's better than him in a number of areas, but he's made a career out of doing a couple things really, really well. And can Cardwell either figure out those couple things, or can he be a guy, like you said, like Daniel Cleary, who plays in the bottom six, just figures out how to be a good team guy and, and build off of what's around him, and just kind of contribute in any way he can. I think that's going to be what it's going to be moving forward for Ethan Cardwell. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I agree completely. All right. Now the next guy on our list is a guy we've talked about a couple times in the podcast. He was on the world junior team, Ben Goudreau, who's having not the best season in Sarnia. He's got an 873 save percentage of 340 goals against average, and he's got a 13, 10 and two record. So it's not the worst, but we kind of expected a lot more from Goudreau coming into the year. Yeah, honestly, I, I thought he was going to be the top contender for the OHL Goaltender of the Year Award, the Jim Rutherford, and uh, he just hasn't had a good year. Uh, and honestly, uh, I've been trying to put my finger on like what the issue is. And the one thing that I have noticed, like going back and watching some of Goodrow's good games previously, and then some of what's happened this year, he kind of looks like he's guessing. And, and I think that he's not necessarily trusting just that solid athleticism and just trying to get in you know, those really good positions, um, you know, at the top of the blue ice um, in his paint, like being aggressive that way. It seems like he's trying to guess Um, and he's taking himself out of position. He's opening up holes just by trying to be one step ahead of the action, but it's backfiring on him um, instead of allowing the game to come to him. And that's sort of like the one thing I've really noticed about his game. It's, It's just been a little bit erratic. And I think it explains some of those inconsistencies, like even since returning from the world juniors, he's had like a good game, a not great game, a good game, a not great game. And he's going to have to put it together for Sudbury to make a deep run in the playoffs. Yeah. Or Sarnia, think, sorry. Yeah. I was going to say with Sarnia, but no, I think Gujar's a really good goaltender. You mentioned the athleticism. That's the obvious thing. Every time you watch him, uh, Oh, harken back to his draft year. We had a, uh, a 50 save performance against Windsor. And then I think he went into London and had a 49 save performance and lost both games. And I think sometimes when you're a goalie that's in a, a kind of a situation similar to what Goudreau has been in with Sarnia, where they haven't been able to take that step to that elite status. They haven't been able to become that contender that they were hoping to be. It wears on you. And now that they've started to build up around him, 
he's not able to hold up his end of the bargain and whether his confidence is shot or whatever it may be. I think he's a really good goaltender. He's still a guy that if I'm the Sharks, I signed to an AHL deal. I let him take the time with a pro goaltending staff and, and kind of figure out the game because his athleticism is there. We've seen him shine at huge in, in moments. So I think he's still a really good prospect. It, it hasn't been a great season, though. There's no sugarcoating it. Yeah, I, and I would go even one step phony, uh, further, Tony. I, I would sign him to an ELC. Uh, the number of players, number of goaltenders specifically, who do get contracts to fill out AHL rosters or, or ECHL rosters is, is quite high. And Goudreau has potential. He really does. I don't think that this year is, is indicative of the type of goaltending prospect that he is. And if you can get him working with a pro-level uh, goaltending coach next year maybe it's even in the ECHL or maybe you decide to send him back to uh, Sarnia as an OA it's a rare thing to do after you sign a player but maybe it's something that you look at um, maybe even half a year he spends half the year in the AHL ECHL you give him the things that you want him to work on then you say hey we're going to send you back to the OHL for that second half let's see how you apply it against lower level competition right um you can be patient, and I, and I do think Goudreau has, has potential still as an NHL netminder. All right, let's move on to the final three guys in the system. None of them are guys that necessarily stick out as impact players, but Liam Gilmartin's a guy that's got a little bit of pedigree coming from the NTDP. Uh, 20, 26 points, 10 goals, 16 assists in 31 games, 42 penalty minutes, and plus seven rating for the Erie Otters. Not really a guy that is stuck out too much. I don't know if he'll get a contract coming out of this season, but what have you kind of liked about his game? Yeah, I really liked Gil Martin as a draft eligible player, actually, with that program, like you said. And I kind of had high expectations for him as an OHL player. I thought he would come in and kind of fill like a John Gruden kind of role. Also a guy that came from the program and ended up being a very, very useful OHL player. Um, and uh, just recently played his first NHL game, too. Um, and Gil Martin just hasn't really been a standout. Uh, you know, the, he's the type of guy who, who will get his nose dirty. Um, you know, he'll drive the net. He works the corners. He plays both ends reasonably effectively. Um, the skating ability, you know, isn't, isn't high end. The skill, especially small area skill, um, you know, isn't incredibly high end either. Um, and I think that's sort of been what's limited him, uh, especially as a finisher in tight and, and trying to find those opportunities in the middle of the ice. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't know if there's a future for him in the NHL. I can see him being a guy that signs in the AHL and maybe just tries to take the long road, doesn't get the AELC and stick with the team that drafted him, but maybe he tries to figure it out after that. But it's going to be an interesting case for, for Gil Martin because, like you said, he was a guy that I thought had high hopes coming into the OHL. Let's move on to Max McHugh from the London Knights, a guy that plays a depth role there, 21 points in 35 games, 45 penalty minutes. What have you thought about his game, and, and do you think there's a chance that he kind of gets – any sort of pro career going? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a chance that he can have a pro career. He's a high-energy guy, right? Um, the motor is always going. Um, not, I wouldn't say, the most skilled player on the ice, but I think he understands that and, and plays to his strengths. Um, I don't think he's a, a bad skater. I think that there's definitely some um, skating talent there too, which helps him to apply pressure as, as a four-checker, as a back-checker, um, as a physical presence. He can be hard on pucks, good in puck pursuit. Um, again, the upside is going to be very, very limited. He's probably going to have to take that sort of long road. I don't see him being signed by the Sharks. Probably ends up going back 
uh, as an OA in London, where he could have a, a really good year. Uh, one of those guys who ends up sort of exploding in his OA year, and then maybe he earns an NHL contract that way or an AHL deal that way, uh, or maybe he ends up, you know, the CIS route. I, I don't know. All right, and our final prospect for the day for the San Jose Sharks is Artem Guriev, physical defenseman from the on the back end, guy traded from Peterborough to Flint. Seven points in 30 games between the two teams, 51 penalty minutes. What's your gauge on him aside from the fact that he's more than willing to blow guys up? Yeah, and, and that's the big thing, right? He's one of the most physical defensemen in the OHL. Uh, somebody who just loves to hit. Just that That's just it. Like uh, Arbizak guy, right? Like the, it just, it fires him up. Um, and the other thing too with, with Guriev is he's actually quite mobile. For that type of player, for that type of defender, um, the mobility, the forward mobility is quite strong. Um, it's just a puck management. That's always been the case with Guriev since he's entered the OHL is he just doesn't have that sort of creativity that we talked about in our, in our defensive Frankensteins, right. Um, where he's just not able to escape pressure and ends up, you know, turning the puck over in certain situations and, and that's going to hurt him at the next level. So uh, he's another guy. I'm just not sure if, uh, if San Jose signs. Yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's always interesting going into a prospect pool that has a lot of guys unsigned into it, but San Jose is one of those. So we've got to go through them all and see what they got, but that'll do it for us today on the THN on the O podcast. As always, I'm Tony Ferrari, this Brock Otten, and we thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next week.